You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, um, you probably don't know this about me, but I, uh, I'm an avid stock market checker, which, don't laugh, um, I, I, maybe you would laugh if you knew this. I don't, and this is what's weird, own any stocks. Uh, nor do I understand how the stock market works. I, I had Dave, one of our elders, sit down with me like a few months ago, and I just asked him, I was like, can you explain this thing to me? I still don't have the heart to tell him I understood 0% of what he said. Uh, but I do this every day. Every day, I get on my phone and I click the stocks app. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I think I just, I think I just like watching the lines go up and down. Like I'm like a four-year-old, it's like exciting to me, I don't know. But I'll tell you what was really exciting uh, in kind of the worst way was watching those little lines uh, around the end of February, early March. Anybody watch those lines that day? I, I watched it. Uh, man, that was crazy. I mean, all of a sudden in like a week's time, we went from like Earth's greatest economy to we're all gonna die. It was, it was so crazy to me. I mean, things that we thought like mattered super big, just the next day we're like, oh, they're not important. Oh, you thought, you thought we were gonna go see a movie with your boo bear? False, you're never gonna go to the movies again. That's it, you're done. Oh, you thought you, thought you were good on toilet paper? You need 10,000 rolls of toilet paper. You need them in your house right now. That's, that's, that's what that moment did inside of us. And, and because of, it's, it's just fascinating how, the why. A, a microscopic particle f- floated one day into someone's nostril. And then, and then everything we knew about our life and our future and what to expect about things just got turned on its head. I mean, this is wild. And I was thinking about it this week as I was studying and reading this parable because as I'm reading the parable, I'm realizing that's what Jesus is doing in giving us this insight about a certain man in this story. This is a story of a man who's been living with some false assumptions about the world and things are fine. And then he's introduced some rea- to some realities that upend everything in his life. And by God's grace, we, we have this story and this insight from Jesus that we can sit with now. We can get this wisdom and insight and reality now before it's too late for us. So that's what we're doing. We're coming around this story for this purpose, to, to see the realities that maybe some of us aren't operating in yet so that we can be changed now before it's too late. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a person who lives in light of actual reality, right? Like, not what I like make up to be reality, but actual reality. And so I think that's one of the things that this text is going to do for us this morning. Here's the three realities that Jesus gives us. The meaning of money, the purpose of people, and the source of our problems. That's sort of the movement today. The meaning of money, the purpose of people, and the source of our problems. Let's look at it together. If you have a Bible, get it out. We're in Luke chapter 16. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 19. And the text says this. There was a rich man 
who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so here we are. We're in another one of Jesus's parables. And if you've been with us at all, you've seen stories like this already happen. Jesus uh, oftentimes takes characters with just like wildly different attributes and he puts them together to, to state a point. Well, what's the point here? Well, we, to answer that, we have to know something about the context. Uh, what what brought about this moment? This moment comes on the heels of two other stories from uh, Jesus earlier in this chapter, and they're both dealing with wealth and money. P.S., wealth and money, kind of a big deal to Jesus. He talks about it more than he talks about love. So when he talks about it, we should really pay attention because apparently it matters a lot to the way we live our life. Okay, so... When Jesus is done teaching these things, the Pharisees are there, right? And that always goes well, right? So they're there, they've heard this, and they are hot. Look a few verses earlier at verse 14. It says this, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, Jesus says this, now listen to this, listen to this, because it's, this is going to set up our parable. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He's saying you don't see reality clearly. You're misunderstanding things. Now, just a few verses after this, we're going to get our parable. So that's the setting. We know at least this much is going on. Part of what Jesus is about to do in this parable, so we're going to keep our ears perked for it, is he's going to be addressing misunderstandings about the way things work, the, the realities that we live in. He's going to be addressing that, and it's probably going to have something to do with wealth. It's probably going to have to do with exalting oneself. Those are going to be the themes that are going to pop up. So I'm just saying this because this is just good Bible study methods. If you're in something and you don't know what's going on, check the surrounding area and then get into your text from there. So he says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He says a couple other things, and then he gets to the parable, as if to say, let me show you what I mean. What do I mean? Verse 19. Here we go. Here's the parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So here's our first character. He is a rich man. That's what we know about him. Right? How rich? Very. Very rich. He's richy rich. He's like Kanye after the Adidas deal rich. This guy is doing really well. It says that he's clothed in purple. Now to make purple fabric in those days, this is interesting, uh, you, you needed the secretion of a snail. Did you know that? And to get your whole situation purpled, you had to have a ton of snail secretings. Uh, and that was hard to come by. 
And so purple fabric would, was instantly a trigger to go, oh, that's some expensive wear right there. That's, that's snail wear. That's like big time, right? So he's, he's dressed in purple and fine linen. What does he mean by fine linen? Well, that, he's talking about the clothes that go under his clothes. He's talking about the guy's skimpies, right? His underwear. It, essentially, what he's saying is this. Hey, even this guy's boxer game is Louis Vuitton. It's... <laughs> His whole world, his whole vibe is just, it just screams money. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Have you used that in a sentence this week, sumptuously? You need to. It's an amazing word. Now, it doesn't come across in the uh, Greek, uh, I mean, in the English here so much, but in the Greek, that the word that we translate feasted sumptuously, it carries with it this idea of um, happiness, gladness, joy, feasting, celebration, aka, why did he put this in here? Because he wants us to know, hey, this guy, he's rich and he's fine with it. His conscience isn't pricked. He's not like wrestling with what to do with this cash. Like he is feasting sumptuously. Every day is a good day for this guy. That's, that's what he's trying to get across by saying that phrase. So are we getting the picture? Yep. Okay, now, that's our first character. Verse 20, we meet another man. And at his gate, at the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, here's person two. And he couldn't be more different. I mean, this guy is the antithesis of the man that we just heard about. He was a poor man who's given the name Lazarus here. And this guy is in such bad shape that to describe him, Jesus only used passive verbs. Did you notice that? He was, he was laid at the rich man's gate. He desired to be fed with what fell from the table. So, so the picture you're getting is of a guy who is totally immobile. He had to be carried and placed there, and he wasn't even strong enough to feed himself. I mean, he was just, just imagine the worst scenario you could come up with. This is this guy. He is down and out, immobile. The, the idea is helplessness. This guy is helpless. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. When you think dogs, whenever you see dogs in scripture, don't think pet smart puppies, okay? That's not what you should think. You should think more like coyotes, okay? Like scavenger, mangy, scav. These were not your friends. This wasn't like Fido, go fetch. It wasn't that. These were scavenger dogs who were surrounding this just... This, this man covered in sores, licking his wounds. It's a, it's a picture of just utter despair, nothingness, helplessness. You're getting the picture in your head. By, by the way, I want to say this as an aside. P parables exist and stories exist and even poetry in the Bible exists, not just so we can do like theological work with it. It exists so you could see a picture so one of the things that, that we have to be doing, especially in a series called Parables, you've got to use your imagination. We need to be seeing these things. What, is, what does that gate look like he's sitting in front of? 
What does the rich man's wardrobe look like? Well, tell me about those dogs. You need to see it and smell it. You need to see the whole thing. Okay, that's, that's how we get immersed in the way that Jesus prefers to teach us. We see uh, this story. Okay, uh, um, so we have a, uh, a situation about a rich man and a poor man. They're put together. He's at the gate. And uh, before I, I go on into what happens next, um, I, I wanted to take a, a, a quick detour here to commentate on something that I think is in the text, but I couldn't exactly find a, a great place to put it. So I'm going to just put it here and say, because I think the Lord wants me to share this this morning. I was thinking about the poor man, his situation. I'm thinking about what's coming for him in this story. And it, it makes me want to say this. I want to encourage you today, if you are a believer in the room who is also really suffering, and uh, that may be you when you hear this. If that's you, I want to say this. Your suffering is not a commentary on God's love for you. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, Lazarus was an immobile, starving, sick, homeless guy who died on the streets. And yet, in just one verse, he's going to be in glory with God forever. And yet, he was deeply loved by his maker. And yet, and yet. If you're Christ's in here and you are just in the midst of it, and there are so many of us who are just in the midst of struggle and hard and suffering, you need to hear this, that your station in life, your situation is not a critique of your life. You are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. Even on the hardest day you have, that hasn't changed, your status hasn't changed, when you expire, you will be with God in paradise, and what you are going through is not a report card on your performance. And we can be tempted to think that way, and we're gonna see that in a little bit, but I just wanna say that, I don't know who that's for, but if it's for you, embrace that, because that is true. He loves you, he loves you. Okay. Back to the story. We've met our characters, rich man, poor man, Lazarus, and then something happens that no one sees coming. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this is another one of those. Do you remember three weeks ago I was talking about uh, how parables are stories that glitch? They're going along just normal and then something happens that disrupts how we think about things. That's what's happening right here. This story is glitching. Suddenly, both men's situations are just 
entirely and utterly reversed. The, the man who you could not invent a man lower on the totem pole of life is now exalted into the highest heaven, seated by the patriarch of the faith himself, Abraham, there for all time to enjoy God forever. And then the guy who had everything, right on a piece of paper, everything you could want, it was on that paper in his life. He had everything. This guy is now at the bottom. He's in Hades, it says, being in torment. No one would have seen this coming. Now, you might see this coming because we know the story, and we might not have the same operational grid as these folks did. But let me tell you, this would have been very confusing if you were a first century Jew. Here, here's the sort of operating equation that, that this group of people at this time would have, would have been working in. Wealth and health equals God loves me. Suffering and pain equals God's judging me. That would have been the functional equation that they operated in. You actually see this all throughout the Bible. This isn't just Jimmy inventing this. I'll give you one example. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they see a man, it says, blind from birth, sitting there. And his disciples, in verse 2, look at Jesus, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Do you see what he's saying? What they're saying is, no one gets to this status without having doing something real bad. So did this guy do the doing, or did his parents do the doing? Because somebody sinned for him to have this hard of a situation. This was the operational grid they lived by. Suffering connected with judgment, prosperity connected with approval. Now, before you go, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't think like that. These guys are crazy. Check yourself. Because the truth is, I think if you pressed the way that you think, you would see this in yourself as well. Let me give you an example. Have you ever thought when, when something terrible happens to you, and guys, who, who, for who is this not true? Just some, some news came and it devastated you and it upended your world. Have you ever had that thought when that moment came? God, what did I do to, to what? Deserve this? Do you see, you see what that sentence betrays about the way we think? What did, what did I do to deserve this? What are you saying? Haven't I done enough that my life should be easy? Or you're saying this, what is the bad thing I've done that has brought all of this trauma and drama into my world? But you see, we're not actually so different than these guys. This is how they thought, and this is how we tend to operate. We love to connect wealth and prosperity with God loves me. And we love to connect suffering and pain and trial with God must be unhappy with me. And this rich man misunderstood this as well. He misunderstood the meaning of money. He thought money meant God's approval. Wealth equals he's pleased with me. But here's what Jesus is telling us. Money is not a proof 
of God's approval, but a tool for God's compassion. You see that? It's not a proof of God's approval, like an attaboy that you go spend on yourself. It is a tool for God's compassion. Think about it like this. The wealth that we've been entrusted with is less like a reward and more like a resource. It's less like a reward, like, hey, way to go. Here's a hundred bucks. And more like, more like how a, a man gives money to his stockbroker. What is that exchange like? I'm giving this to you to invest for me, for my sake. When God entrusts us with anything, he's entrusting us with something that will generate gain for his purposes. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't get provided for in the midst of it. It doesn't mean that you can't buy a house or things like that. We, you know this. But what it does mean is that money is not, and, that, and everything that we're, we're given is not, is not meant to just be burned on us. It's meant to be exploited for the compassionate use on other people. It's not just, a, it's not a proof of God's approval, but a tool for God's compassion. And, and can, can I just say this? God is putting opportunities for compassion in front of you all the time. Don't think that he's not. There are Lazaruses in your life right now. You might not even think of them like that, but there are people and opportunities and ministries and the church and all sorts of ways that God has set in front of you that he's given you your measure of wealth and your situation to be leveraged for his glory and the compassionate use among people. And we can't miss this. We can't, may we never, Stonegate, be people who step over our Lazaruses on the way to our own pleasure. That's what happened in the text. This is what the rich man did. He stepped over all of those Lazaruses in his life, and he stepped right into hell. Now, I'm not saying, you can lose your salvation if you do that. I'm saying, when we live like that, it's betraying the fact that we actually don't know the reality that we're actually not operating in the thing that we say we know about God, about the world, about others. And that's a dangerous place to be. And Jesus wants us to see that reality. So that's the first thing he shows us, the meaning of money. But he goes on. It's not just money that this man misunderstands. It's people too. He can't see the purpose of people. Look at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. Notice this. First, he addresses Abraham and he calls him father. He says, Father Abraham, this guy is still deceived. He still thinks he's in the club. He still thinks that this guy's his boy, right? He calls him Father Abraham. The whole parable, he refers to him like this, but the only sense in which he's his father is genetically. There's no way that this man is actually his spiritual father. They have nothing in common. They don't see the world the same at all, but he thinks that even in hell. And then he asks, have mercy on me. How? How are you, how? is Abraham to have mercy on him? Well, he gives him a suggestion. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Here's the point. Even while in hell, he sees Lazarus 
as his servant. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Think about the audacity of that. He sees this man and he immediately thinks when he sees him, that's a man to be used for my gain, for my benefit. So Abraham, will you send that lackey over there? Send him to dip his finger. And think about the audacity of this statement. For, for Lazarus to get the water on his fingertip to the rich man, where does Lazarus have to go? Hell. He would have to go to hell. The rich man just said, send Lazarus to hell for me. This is, this is the extent of human selfishness. This is the heart of a person who does not have God at the top of their hierarchy. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, we all have somebody seated on that throne in our life. And if it's not God up there on that throne, you know who's going to crawl right up on it? You're looking at him. We are. We crawl up on that throne. And if we crawl up on the throne, what does that make us? It makes us kings and queens, doesn't it? And if we're the king, what does that make everyone else in our life? They're our subjects. They're the people who do our bidding. I have wants, and you help me get my wants. This is the way that every human being, apart from the work of God in their life, operates. When God is not at the top, we would rather bring others to hell if it means our happiness. And I know that sounds crazy. And you go, that's crazy. But think about it. Isn't this, isn't this true of our culture? People using other people for their own ends? Don't we see this all the time? I'll tell you, one of the saddest examples, I think, in our, in our culture is what we have done with human sexuality. When we see others as means and, and not ends, this is the root of pornography addiction. I'm going to get what I want despite what it costs you. I just, you are a commodity to me to be consumed. That's what pornography is. This is, this is at the root of marital affairs. I know I made a covenant with you, but I want him. But I want her. And I'm willing to step on your back to get it. This is the root of, of sex outside of marriage. I want you. I just don't want to make any covenant with you or pledge anything to you. I just want to get the goods. Right? But I'm not going to... I'm not going to link up and promise to be faithful to you forever till death do us part. That, no, I just want what I want. And th that's just one example of a billion in our culture. So don't think for a second that somehow you and I are above thinking that, man, I I'm, I'm going to take from you even if it means it gives you the worst situation possible. That's exactly what we do. And that's exactly what the rich man is doing right here. He misunderstands the purpose of people. They are not objects to be exploited. They are made in the image of God and they are to be treasured. And when we don't operate like that in our life, it's usually a betrayal of the fact we don't believe it in our hearts. 
And when that rich man woke up from his death, he realized that he had it all wrong. He had it all wrong. He misunderstood the purpose of people. And that actually brings us to our last point. His third misunderstanding, the third reality that Jesus introduces here. The source of our problems. We doing okay? Yes? So a quick summary of what just happened. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to help him. That's not going to work, he finds out. This thing's permanent. Justice has been done. You're here. He's there. That's, that's all she wrote. And, and not to mention the fact that there's a great chasm fixed between here and there uh, that prevents transit. So you're not getting over here. We, we can't get to you. It's just the way it is. So he hatches a new plan. He develops a new question for Father Abraham. And he says this, verse 27, Then I beg you to send him to my father's house. Notice, who's, who's being sent again? Lazarus is still the guy's lackey. This time he doesn't want him to go to hell. He just wants him to get out of heaven and go back to earth. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now this almost sounds like compassion, right? Well, if I can't fix anything about me, I'm at least thinking about my family now, and they, they don't know. I got five brothers. I don't want them to come here. This is the worst. Send, send Lazarus back. Raise him from the dead. Bring him back to life. Set him in front of them and let him tell them, and they will repent, and they'll avoid this place entirely. He's looking for a resurrection miracle to wow his brothers into repentance, and I love this. You know what Abraham says back to him? Here's what he says back. They got a Bible. That's what he says. He says Moses and the prophets. They got, they got Moses and the prophets. A.K.A. the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Tanakh, but it's shorthand for scriptures. They have, they have a Bible. And, and Abraham is saying, and that's sufficient. That's enough. That's enough for them. Uh, here's one thing that means for us. Don't miss this. The, the, you got your Bible with you? Yeah? Okay. That thing in your hand, Right there? In that book is everything you need to know and love God. In the book you're holding is everything you need to know and love God. Isn't that amazing to think about? And it's on your iPhone. That is amazing to me. You know what that makes me want to do? It just makes me want to just take advantage of that. If that's true, if, if Jesus' words he's putting in Abraham's mouth are true, that they have Moses and the prophets, that's enough. I, wanna, I want to drink the marrow from the scripture. Don't you? I mean, like, it's everything. It gives us everything we need. I don't need... I don't need to see some guy's arm grow back to know that God is true and that Jesus is the way. The word of God is sufficient for that. That's what he's saying. It's sufficient for that. He has Moses and the prophets. Th th that's enough. And yet, and here's what's going to feel a little confusing. The Bible is sufficient. You don't need a, a resurrection miracle to trust in Jesus. You just need his word pronounced. And yet... Somehow, mysteriously, it's not enough. Well, what do I mean by that? 
Look at verse 31. He said to him, this is Abraham responding. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying, you don't believe and they don't believe not because they lack the evidence, but because they lack the heart. The evidence is there. The word of God is sufficient. Not to mention that God's done countless miracles. But you see the, the problem, oh rich man, is, is not that they lack evidence. They lack the heart to believe. They have a heart that is obstinate and walled off from the things of God. So the best external thing that could ever be set in front of them, the word of God itself, a resurrection miracle, if it is external to them, it is insufficient to persuade them because what they need is not external evidence. They need an internal reformation. And that's exactly what we need too. It's not just enough to set data in front of you. I could give you an apologetic for Christ that would blow your mind, but you won't come if your heart's hard. That's what's so unique about Christianity. It's a supernatural religion. We need something more than outside evidences. We need him to come inside and do something within us. I remember I was, um, one of the, the saddest encounters I ever had was uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, I was uh, coming out of a Waffle House. I don't know why I did that. And, uh, and me and a buddy were there and we, we saw a guy sitting on the curb, laying there actually, uh, probably mid-60s, shirt open, emaciated. I mean, skin and bones, except his stomach. His stomach looked literally like he had swallowed a basketball. It was about this big and the whole rest of his body looked anorexic. And we... Uh, we just sat by him for a bit and we just started talking to him. He got to hear his story and it was just so tragic. I mean, here's a man who, uh, he, he had a normal life. He had a wife and kids and he told us that he drank it all away. He drank his marriage away. He drank the relationship with his kids away. He ended up getting cirrhosis of the liver and some other things, infections. And now here he is, uh, he, he's a, a homeless man on the side of the road, I mean, seconds away from death. And I remember we just, we sat there and we just started talking to him and we just told him the gospel that this may be the end for your life here, but, but there can be hope in eternity. We told him about Jesus and how Jesus had died for those sins and, 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 and rose from the grave and defeated death and that he did that for everyone who believed in him. And, and he heard this and, and, and it was amazing. he was in and, and engaged and, and he agreed with what we were saying even. And then I asked him, I said, so bro, do you, do you wanna trust him today? And I'll never forget what he said, it broke my heart. He said, no, I'm just gonna go to hell. I'm just gonna go to hell. 
And I gotta tell you, that feels like such a hyperbole story, but do you understand that that is the condition of every human heart who is not being worked on by the Holy Spirit inside? We have a firewall up against him. If you ever wondered why, why, why don't, maybe, maybe you're in this room, you're like, I do feel this like stiff arm resistance. It is in your nature to feel that. Do you know what that should make you do? If, if what I'm saying is true, that we have an internal disposition that says, I would rather be in hell without you than with you, God. You know what that should cause in you? If you're feeling that inside yourself, plead with them. This is a supernatural faith that takes in someone coming inside you and doing work, not presenting stuff outside of you. Ask God to change your heart to create a, a reformation inside your heart. That's the only way any of us change. And I'm not just talking to lost people today. If you don't know him, this is your only hope. But if you do know him, this is your only hope. If you want to grow in holiness, if you want to grow in conformity to the image of Jesus, but you're feeling resistance, you keep going to the same things, you keep stiff-arming God in some areas, the only hope for you is for God to come in and do an internal work. Our problem is not an external one, it's an internal one. But at the cross, Jesus did internal work for us. He purchased for us, everyone who would trust in him, the Holy Spirit, he purchased for you at the cross, if you'll trust in him, a new heart of flesh that beats for God. He did the work for you. He wants to change you from that. He wants to help because it makes him look great when he does it. You know, it's interesting. The, um, in all of Jesus' parables, he never, um, he never gives a name to any of the characters except one. You know who it is? It's Lazarus. Every other parable is the tax collector, the Pharisee, the rich man. But here we get Lazarus. He names this man. And do you know what Lazarus' name means? It means God helps. God has helped. And that's what I want you to see today that what we need most of all is not information, a radical something out here. We need a radical something in here. And I'm hoping that this passage would cause you to feel needy like Lazarus and plead for change. The change you want to see in your life is only going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit within you. So ask him for that. Ask him to change you from the inside out. He wants to. He wants to be the God of Lazaruses, the God who helps. So let's go to him for help. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I don't know what needs are in this room, but I know you're the helper. You are the great azer. You are the help we need. And we want to be like Lazarus. We want to be people for whom our very name means God has helped us. We don't want to be self-sufficient, self-reliant. We don't want to we don't want to just live for us. We don't want to be the ones seated on our throne. We want to be needy because when we're needy, you come and, and come to our aid. We want those passive verbs to be true 
of us. We want to be carried by you. Carry us. Change us. Help us. God, may we now, before it's too late, before we die, may we live in light of reality. May we operate in the way that you've designed the world to work and not just how we want the world to work. Change us, God. And as we sing songs to you of worship, God, we just, I pray that this would be uh, an overflow of a heart that's grateful for, for who you are and what you've done in our life. And if you're here this morning and, uh, and you're like, man, that's such a struggle for me as I sing songs of worship to feel that, I'm praying for you right now that God would enable you to turn these songs into a prayer request. And God, would you help me to believe these things are true? And may we sing boldly to you, Father, because you are worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.